This episode of Classically Black Podcast is sponsored by Unclassified. Unclassified curates plays for the curious classical listener. Whether you're wanting to cozy up with a good book to Coleridge Taylor. Or get into a productive mood with Debussy. I'm sure they threw this in because they knew we can't stand Debussy. Got to be. (laughs) (laughs) You can stream the perfect playlist for any moment. Learn more at unclassified.com. And it's Katie, and this is Classically Black Podcast. Where we talk all things classical music and being black in the profession. With track beats playing in the melodies from heaven. <laughs> Rain down on me. Yeah, okay. I'm going to say melody. from heaven. Not this is fitting. Okay. Delaney and I just had a very disturbing conversation. It's not disturbing, it's life, but... Well, it's not. It's afterlife. It's like, yeah, so. all, the Sunday school stuff, yeah, very good. I understand what happens. It's just like, to what extent? Like you just cease from being for how long? I'm not doing this. It makes me feel icky every time. I'm not going to hold you. The next time I see my pastor, I'm going to be like, explain to me like a five-year-old how long is heaven and what do we do after that? But then he's going to say what all preachers say that generic response of time doesn't exist the way it does here <laughs> love that for us yep. that's a way of putting it <laughs> or hell so whichever hopefully not the latter depends on the day <laughs> I, was gonna say. I mean i mean i think at this point for me it's gonna be, i don't think what's on you this i feel like at this point it's gonna be like yeah, so we got to step into the boardroom. Now, Katie, we hate to do this, um, but it's up to a vote. Gabriel, what say you? Okay. I don't know. I know Trifle Peter not going to have nothing to say to me. Hello? Okay. All right, so news this week. Because <laughs> this is going to be a long night. So, um, yeah, news this week. <laughs> um girl i don't know i'm feeling like oh yeah i'm sorry every, everyday slave and everyday labor over here i just feel like so. this was not god's intention yes i feel like i've made such a good house plant i would have or like a venus fly trap okay that's gross i mean but you get to like you know you i thought you was vegan but i wouldn't be if i was a plant i would embody veganism as a plant by eating flies but veganism doesn't apply to plants a venus flytrap can't be like oh i'm just gonna eat dirt instead well what do other plants eat not flies they eat sugar how you gonna how you gonna how you gonna okay one not the one but one of the plants that that because they get to do stuff the plants just they don't do nothing but be dramatic like my my plant was all draped over the side and I watered it. I'm like, what's it really all of that? Was it all was it all of that? All draped that over? That seemed like you. 
Okay. What was the news? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so um there's been a recent announcement of the Walter and Peggy Groman endowment fund at the Wallace Annenberg Center for Performing Arts. Um basically they are establishing a fellowship with that fund. Um it's gonna be an annual fellowship award of at least fifteen thousand dollars to advance the career of an exceptionally talented emerging classical pianist or string player that is based in Los Angeles. Um, oh Los Angeles there you go. I don't have nothing to do with me. Come on, bass, um, bass. You feel about that Bodicini? That has, that has nothing to do with me. A little bit of elephants. It has nothing to do with me. That's you right there. Uh, it literally does not. <laughs> In addition to receiving the $15,000 uh, fellowship award, the um, the fellow will be um, receiving performance opportunities, some guidance, some mentorship from the Wallace, um, and receiving exposure to career readiness opportunities. They'll also be asked to plan and implement a community-based project that's designed to promote um, awareness and appreciation of classical music among new audiences in Los Angeles County, which includes younger audience. Katie, I'm not applying to this. <laughs> including younger audiences um, and those we won't, and those who, who lack regular access to the arts. Um, so they're going to be announcing the selection of the fellow um, annually at the beginning of the organization season. So I'm going to link um, the website where you can learn more about the fellowship, the organization, um, and contact them for questions and stuff and see when, you know, y'all can get on it. Um, and then next piece of news this week is um, just announcing the Harry T. Burley Spiritual Festival at um, Tennessee State University, period. Um, so basically they're doing um, the festival a little bit different this year because, you know, we in a Pan-African. So um, they're doing a virtual, uh, a virtual festival with uh, basically three large events over um, March, April and May. Um, so the very first event is happening on March 25th um, at 7 p.m. Central, and it is about um, black arts organizations and leadership. I mean, y'all might could know two of the hosts, I mean, I not the host, panelists, panelists, me and Katie will be there talking about ISBM and Classically Black. Um, there will also be uh, panelists from um, other performing arts, black uh, performing arts organizations. Um, uh, some from Memphis, some from Nashville, some oh, from New Orleans. Memphis. Perfect. So, um, that's happening on March 25th. The second one is happening on April 22nd. Um, and it's called the State of African American Worship and Arts Today. Um, so there's gonna be, you know, um, panelists from the the um church music, you know, arena from all over um one of them you might have seen if you tuned into our variety show y'all saw uh b harvey and team so byron harvey will be there um some other uh prominent uh musicians and musicologists and just people who are involved in um in making music in the church um and then the third session that's happening in may um i believe it's like a two it's a two-part um actually no, no 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 there's a third session and then there's a finale so period um so the third one is called a uh, word across time poets and poetry from burley to shakur and beyond um and then their final 
the final event is Songs of Our Soul, a celebration of African-American musical achievement. And that's a two-part event that's happening in June. Um, so um, I believe the finale is like, yeah, it's going to be on YouTube and Facebook Live, but all the other events do require registration. So I will link the information for y'all to um get registered get ready to go to that um also shout out to patrick daly who has been black excellence before mm-hmm. and who um has invited us to uh be a part of this and you know patrick out there he he doing his thing yeah patrick built different built differently so strong tower oh, every time okay. you say i <laughs> know <laughs> um, i showed my mom that and she was like yeah do something it sounds like something like, i'm not saying a copyright claim i'm just saying it sound yeah like above it sounding churchy it just sounds like something when i figure out what it is i'm I'm gonna feel so fulfilled i've been thinking about this when was the variety show a month ago and here i am laying up at night what song is that <laughs> yep that's it that's the news mm-hmm. okay per. short and sweet because last week i was supposed to keep it short and sweet and then we spent 30 minutes on the news so and I was like, dang, I should have pushed something. <laughs> so, well. well, we're moving on. All right, y'all. So we back. And as you can tell by the title of the show, we got a guest. We here with the illustrious, the <laughs> famous. <laughs> I'm sorry. After you do a TED Talk, I'm sorry. After you do multiple TED Talks, I feel like <laughs> I'm just happy to be in your presence, even if it's virtual. Uh, you still don't know who I'm talking about. Stanford Thompson. <laughs> 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 well, I appreciate it, but I've seen you do the same thing with all your other guests, so I'm not feeling that, okay. That's special, not oh, okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa! That's not fair because we we don't gas everybody, now do we? That's it. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. See, and also, so I, I am feeling the love. Also, I think about it like you are the cal- you those people of your caliber, just black excellence, untouchable, unmatched. Who among mm-hmm. us? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, now that we've, you know, gassed him up, uh, how about we have Stanford tell us, just tell the listeners a little bit about who you are. Well, I'm it's Stanford Thompson. I grew up in Atlanta and a big musical family. Started playing trumpet when I was eight. Uh, went through the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra's talent development program um, where I uh, fell in love with classical music specifically and wanted to be part of that world. Ended up studying trumpet performance at the Curtis Institute of Music, uh, followed by a year in the Systema Fellows program at the New England Conservatory. And in a trip to Venezuela, um, I fell in love with the El Sistema philosophy and came back to Philadelphia and founded Play on Philly, which is an after-school music program serving over 300 youth throughout the city, but through daily after-school music instruction where the students uh, learn a standard orchestral instrument and learn teamwork through playing in orchestras. Okay, we wanted you to introduce yourself first because um, I wanted you to do the intermission with us, and every time I ask the guests to do the intermission, we never get to the part where who the guest is. So um, <laughs> Delaney had that foresight this time, so we just be talking. Okay, so you're familiar with the show. You know that um, you know we have a little thing called intermission here. I'm just gonna 
this is wait one second i'm a little scared because i don't know where that where it went i live my life in in the notes app so like everything i do is in the notes app <laughs> oh you want those people uh-uh, wait. <laughs> it's always here it's on my phone it's on my computer it's everywhere I need to be. And uh, my computer's being an enemy of progress, but you know what's good about the notes app? It's right here on my phone, too. Anyway, so we're gonna play. Uh, we, all, all of us here are teach or have been involved in the LSM Inspire program. My first LSM Inspire program was rock music um, led by Dr. Armin Hall in Rochester, New York. That's my first exposure to the LSM model and things. And I, I, I would have to say, out of everything that I've done teaching-wise, it's been my favorite teaching experience. I have a great rapport with my kids and I really enjoy it. But with that, I've also had some very exciting um, such alarming teaching experiences. And I just wanted to see if we've all been on the same page. We're gonna play a little game of this or that. Should be fun. Don't worry. I see you look nervous. Don't worry. Okay. The first one. More. What's more alarming? Dropping a violin or dropping a trumpet? Probably dropping a violin. Um, yeah, I would have to. I would have to agree. I feel like. I mean, I don't know too much about the trumpet, but I feel like there's just a lot of stuff that can be knocked out of place on a violin. Why do you? Why did you say like? Um, why did you say uh, violin instead, Stanford? Because it all depends how much that violin is worth. A trumpet might only be a couple hundred dollars. If it's really good, a really good trumpet, it might be $2,000. And as you all know, a violin can be any amount. I'll never forget Ray Chen letting one of our students <gasps> play the Strad. And I'm sitting there thinking, please, Lord, I can't. <laughs> if this boy dropped his violin, the whole program is over. I mean, like. All the children, we had to sell all the instruments and their front teeth in order to <laughs> pay back. So anyway, that's why I always cringe when I just hear the sound oh. of a violin hitting the ground or something. I'm just like, I don't know if it's one of the $75 violins or if it's one of the $4,000. So anyway, that's why I kind of freak out. It's a sound that, I mean, I, I've, I've, one sound that I'm, that I've, become accustomed to hearing because I have some public school experience and I did some teaching like in undergrad. I've, I've been like a little bit everywhere, private school, whatever. I'm used to hearing the cello and pen situation, you know, the kid trips over the end pen. But <laughs> the first time you hear a violin drop four feet to the ground was in Rochester. And I was like, my heart, that's a sound that I couldn't, I've never heard before. It's alarming. <laughs> And you also, I picture my viola falling like that. And I'll be like, how is this not? Anyway, let's move mm -hmm. on. I feel, I, feel, I feel it right here. Mm -hmm. um, okay. A kid starts crying in rehearsal or a kid starts eating in rehearsal? Probably eating. You said which, which is more yeah. alarming? I would say oh, the eating. I mean, yeah. Cheeto juice being on the, on the <laughs> fingerboard or getting inside of the trumpet. Yeah, crying oh, child. That, that I forgot y'all can't so. eat. Oh, I forgot about that. I used to eat lunch at orchestra, but I used to also try for it. Yeah. And Don't stuff eat. just ends up places and you find it two months later. That's the problem. That's gross. 
Uh, oh my gosh. I'm just imagining some of the flute players putting the little thing through the flute and it's Cheeto crumbs. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think one of the one of the biggest learning curves for me was when I went, because Armin has changed the structure of the program, but when I first got there, he just kept the original structure, which was like just orchestra class, right? So I got there and I'm, I'm doing my thing, you know, we doing whatever, Dragon Hunter, whatever the heck. And this boy takes out a bag of chips out of his pocket. I'm like, have you lost your mind? He's like, oh, 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 I don't know what they was doing before, but uh. okay. Um, a teacher crying or a parent crying? You ever seen a parent? You look like you ever seen a parent cry or do any? It is weird. It's very weird. Cry about what? <laughs> their child. They're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed about their child. Mm. It's very weird. It's very awkward. I would say a teacher in my case. Mm. Um, because I got to put up with that teacher the next time I see them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but I would say, I mean, to see a teacher get to that point, mm-hmm. usually something really bad has gone on and I'm afraid to find out what happened. Yeah, you got to be down bad if you start crying. In front of kids, that's it for you. Yeah. I've had a, I, when I was in sixth grade, they made the teacher cry. Oh, it was over for her. It's a damn um, bad. Yeah. Oh, I feel like I'm, I would be awkward in either situation. I feel like I would be more awkward with a parent, though. Yeah. Because I would just be like, girl, I don't know you either. Like, so <laughs> it would just be like, <laughs> so like, girl, crying for it. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather take teacher crying. Okay, first day of strings, first day of brass. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, I would say first day of brass. Trying no, to get a kid to figure out, yeah. Trying to get kids to figure out like how to make a sound is much different than pluck a string or true. putting a bow on it. I mean, it's, yeah, talk about being blindfolded. And then the sounds that are made, Mm-hmm. Um, the chaos. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah, I was and see, I was thinking about it. <laughs> see, I'm not built for this because I was thinking about it from like which one gonna get on my nerves more. <laughs> like, the string one definitely wouldn't for that reason. They won't know how to get a sound out of this. Like, okay, first day of chocolate class, they not they could you know they're gonna be blown on. They're not gonna really be loud playing a whole thing like get notes out and stuff so but yeah i mean the trumpet is it's an enigma to me like i remember i wanted to play an instrument for fun i wanted to teach myself an instrument in high school and i was hell bent on the trumpet and i never got a sign out of it i'm talking about took the books home got the dvd i'm like all right never got it switched to flute went to to methods courses a couple years later at, at isu Pass me just for you, my good attitude because I never got a sound mm-hmm. out of that thing. Like I don't know mm-hmm. what it is. Okay, this is the last one. Okay, so we have some intonation things that are consistent across string pedagogy. The first one is first finger B in twinkle or playing C sharp in G major. C sharp in G major. Yeah. That's just never good. It's just uh, never right. I mean, if they first finger is something, you can just you can chop off the finger. That's okay. One way you can do it. 
um, or just like break it at the tip. You know what I mean? Um, That's my kind of pedagogy. Wait, hold on. You write some okay. <laughs> Yeah. And then usually when you do that and after it's healed, that finger gets put in the right place. Write so. that down, write that down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it always hurts my heart when you hear the, because twinkle goes so well for the first two notes. And that, mm-hmm. that first finger B will just will embarrass you. You have, you have one, Delaney? I guess you don't have first finger B, but I guess I'm yeah, first so finger I was going to say, I feel like by, by d- default, I guess I'm going to just say C sharp and G major. Is first finger is first finger A a problem for y'all, intonation wise? Um, no, oh. Oh, I mean, everything a problem. Right? Everything a problem for me, intonation wise. So all right. So anyway, can't really single can't really single one out. <laughs> I think for me, more alarming is the C sharp and G major because it just it's a little disheartening for me because it just reaffirms the fact that y'all can't hear this, like y'all. Like D major has been like an extra, it's just been something that you do, something you play. Like we play these eight notes and that's it. That's a scale. It has no meaning. It's just eight notes. And that's always alarming for me because it's like, I feel, I feel a little bit of anxiety. Like you don't hear this. And it's also a trigger for me because I didn't hear it when I was, that was a huge problem for me. Um, studying music seriously, like an undergrad, like I had to learn to hear music so I could play it in Zoom because it was just notes. I didn't have they, they were just there so i think that triggered for me so we made it see it wasn't that bad you was a little bit alarmed it was a little gay a little game game <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh we can move on unclassified allows you to stream curated classical music playlists for any moment okay ladies now let's get information Period. We going from one month of excellence to another. Welcome to Women's History Month. And what a perfect way to listen to some of your favorite women composers and some classically black alumna. You remember Clara Schumann from episode 73? Oh, yeah, yeah. When she was doing a busted challenge. Or Alma Mahler from episode 91. There's also T.T. Flo. Florence Price. Mm-hmm. And Erilyn Wallen. You can find Unclassified's profile and playlist on major streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, and more. Follow them at Unclassified HQ on social media and learn more at Unclassified.com. And we are moving on. Okay, so like we said earlier, we're here with Stanford Thompson. We're going to talk to him a little bit about um, some of his origins with Play on Philly and also his new project that he's leading called Nimon. Um, so let's 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 wind it back. So you say you started um, you started play on Philly. Can you talk a little bit more about? Can you start, talk a little bit more about play on Philly origins and like how you got there and a little bit of that process? I know a little bit about play on Philly and the residency because I had to, I wrote a paper on El Sistema and I, I know you spent some time in Venezuela. So I'm just curious um, to see like what was your process in creating play, play on Philly and and what was that all about? <laughs> So I think that, I mean, for me, this started when I was pretty young. Um, I did websites. Um, One of my first projects in high school was creating the Atlanta Trumpet Festival. Um, When I was in college, I created a one-week summer camp in Reading, Pennsylvania, um, about an hour and a half north of Philly. Um, I also... Uh, developed a two-week summer camp based out of Curtis, but for the Philadelphia All-City 
uh, brass students that played in the orchestra and the band. Um, so I had done a couple of small projects. Um, again, one week here, two weeks there, that type of thing. Thinking about starting a project where I was seeing kids every single day after school was a little crazy mm -hmm. because the most expensive program that I had run was I think like $11,000, the project in Reading. And I killed myself all year to raise $11,000 for the one week program. Mm -hmm. um, but it was in a rehearsal with Simon Rattle at Curtis when he told us that there were some kids in Venezuela that would outplay us. Um, and then a couple of months later, Gustavo Dudamel was named the music director of the LA Phil. I think he was 27 or so at the time. And here it was, a conductor out of Venezuela who didn't go to Juilliard, didn't go to Curtis or the Vienna Conservatory, nothing like that, came out of this program out of Venezuela. And I think that as both of you know the story, I mean, it was a huge deal mm -hmm. to not have an old, European white male conducting the LA field. They had this, this wonder kid. So um, about a month after that, Dr. Abreu, um, who founded El Sistema, won the TED Prize. And given his TED talk, I saw my life um, kind of told through that story in Venezuela. And that's the moment I was in my last semester at school. Um, when I saw that TED talk, I knew I wanted to do something else with my life. That same semester, um, I played about a month in the Seoul Philharmonic in South Korea. And I knew for sure I did not want the orchestra life every week um, after that experience. And then the third thing that happened, I did my grad school auditions. And I remember thinking to myself, after I finished my last grad school audition, actually at NEC, I said, I just got a really good education for four years. I'm going to sign up for two more years of this thing that I don't fully believe in. Probably get $100,000 in debt. Talk about it. Um, <laughs> to, to play $150 wedding gigs. Like something didn't add up to me. And I was sitting there like, I don't know about this. So I just, I wanted to be part of the solution mm -hmm. um, because I saw that, for example, at Curtis, we could spend $140,000 a year per student at Curtis. So every kid can get a full tuition. And then I was seeing school teachers throughout Philadelphia who had about a hundred dollar budget for the year given by their principal. And I was just like, something's not right here. And perhaps I'm in a position to convince some of my new Curtis friends to give money so that I can start this big ambitious project. Mm -hmm. um, and I just worked really hard at, you know, those times in, in college where they're like, hey, you know, essentially what they're saying is, hey, um, you're black. Can you attend this little donor luncheon? You know, um, because we need to show the diversity <laughs> of the school. So can you go to this lunch? Um, and I used to go to them um, and found out that those people that I sat next to, I was able to develop a relationship and just be honest with them about, look, I see some inequity out here. Will you help me launch this project? 
And when I needed 300,000 to get started with the first 85 kids, you know, that's about the price of two Curtis students for the year. So, you know, again, finding and just understanding like this is a bargain. What I'm trying to sell is a bargain (laughs) in comparison. And let me throw this other number out there. You know, the Philly Orgasha spends about pre-COVID, they were spending about a quarter million dollars per day. So the amount of money, and look, the the LA field is spending twice that amount of money pre-COVID. So here I am asking the same donors that support the orchestra or Curtis, I'm asking them for like a slice. So all of that stuff in my last semester came came together. Um, I think that just my focus on what I wanted to do with my career, um, I think the people that I wanted to help me, um, and I think the communities I wanted to work with, I think that all came together in a really compelling argument to say, I'm willing to spend the next couple of years just trying to get this program off the ground. I just need a little bit of bread. I need some people to come out to help teach the kids. I need a school that's willing to play ball. I need some parents that are willing to give me their kids. And let me try to put all of this together into something powerful. And when I was thinking about that, I never thought Play on Philly would become what it is today. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also didn't think when I was like 13, 14, starting to get more serious about playing trumpet, I also did not think that all the stuff that happened to me in college and professionally whatever happened. Mm-hmm. So I was just kind of thinking, look, if I work as hard as I worked playing trumpet, I think I'm going to find people that are willing to back me up, help support me, just like the people who supported me and mentored me when I was in high school. Yeah. You said you needed to find kids like the your original your original um site. Were, were they just open to like this idea like, hey, we want to teach your kids instruments for free and they just went with it? Or was it like a, a was it a difficult thing to do? Because like, in my experience, like I wanted to start something similar in Jamaica. So I was like, my, my cousin is a PE teacher. I'm like, yo, put me in charge of your, put me in contact with your principal, your school. I would love to do something small like this, teach kids violin or whatever. And she was like, yeah, we don't really do that in the countryside. You have to go to the city. And I was like, maybe it's different in culture. Like y'all don't think that that will be valuable to kids or you think that's only reserved for city kids or like in my experience like people having what you explain like I want to teach this thing and parents are like you know kind of good with that so I'm just curious like what, what the reception was you had to find multiple schools until you landed on the schools that you that you got to yeah it, it sounds weird that I would come in saying hey I want to give some free music lessons and bring in instruments and teachers and like pay for everything school don't got to pay for nothing thinking that the schools were going to go for it. No. Yeah, it's crazy. No. It was it was too many days per week. One school was like, wait, you need you need storage space for the instruments? Oh, we don't got that. Or we we can't give you those many classrooms every day after school. Um, so I didn't find a school until I met some nuns at a Catholic K-8 school in West Philly. And I walked in the door, had a conversation with them, and they were like, oh, oh, we've been praying for this. And I was like, man, if y'all been praying for this, I think we can play ball. But, you know, working with the same 
same kids, same neighborhoods um, as, you know, kids in the public schools or some of the charters. And then once we were successful at that school and we were showing results, like for example, the 85 kids we had, they were a letter grade and a half above the other kids in the school that did after school tutoring and sports and extracurriculars. So when the principal saw like a fifth of the school's grade tire, which took the whole average of the school up, she was just like, what can we do to get more kids in there? So she started directing dollars that she was spending on um, after school tutoring and sports. She started giving it to us. And we were able to go to the parents saying, look, I know you think that putting your kid in the after school math tutoring is going to you think it's going to help them get their grades up. But we showed here that the kids that did music every day after school were showing better grades. Mm -hmm. They went to school 30% more. So with with those types of results, I mean, you know, we boosted the program up to 160 kids, which was a little bit more than a fourth of the school. Um, The school has raised millions of more dollars um, I mean, they love us. We've been there. This is, well, this would have been our 11th year at the school. But um, so anyway, I just, I, I needed one place where we could be successful and show that this concept works. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're in four schools. So. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like how much, your work at Play on Philly influenced the creation of, of NEMON, the, the National Instrumentalist Mentoring and Advancement Network for, for those who, um, who, who aren't familiar. Um, just kind of talk about like what that, tra- not transition, but you know, how the work that you did there um, at Play on Philly kind of like translated to the need of, of NEMON to be created. Yeah, so I would say a couple of things. I mean, I, First of all, my parents are retired music educators. So I had that around me all the time. Um, I also had the support of programs like the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra's Talent Development Program. They pay for my lessons every week. They pay for my summer camp at Interlochen every summer. They helped me get instrument upgrades. Um, And then when uh, and sorry, in high school, my teacher was Chris Martin, who's principal trumpet of the New York Philharmonic. Um, he also was 12 years principal in Chicago, uh, five years principal in Atlanta, but his first job right out of undergrad was in the Philly Orchestra. And he made it really clear, if you want to get into a school like Curtis, um, I sat next to the guy who teaches there. This is exactly how he wants to hear every excerpt, every solo, every etude. And if you play it just like this, he's going to like it. And I like to say all the time, I was not the best trumpet player, but I was the best prepared. Um, So when I think about all of the support that I received, when I looked at all of the opportunities, um, all of the financial support, the technical training and practicing, and people in my life that from a psychological and a behavioral standpoint we're saying like this is how you keep your mind in the game when you fail at the audition this is how you pick yourself back up um, when 
people are being racist to you and around you, this is how you stay focused. This is how you get through those types of hardships that add all of those things up. Um, uh, all the resources that I received to overcome every single challenge that was unique to my experience. Um, that's after examining all of that, as I was switching tracks to start playing on Philly, I was just thinking a lot about how do we make these connections happen for more black and brown classical musicians? And for the, quite frankly, good white people in my life, how do we make more good white people? Um, how do we make good gatekeepers that are keeping people um, out um, and those that are willing to let people in? Let them in on the secrets and on the opportunities. So how do we create um, both of these kind of parallel paths where the like musician of color is working hard, practicing hard, like you still got to put the work in. But at the same time, how do we um, dismantle some of the structural inequities and the biases and the racism? Um, how do we deconstruct that um, in a way that it opens up the floodgates mm -hmm. for more musicians that look like us to find their place in the world of classical music? Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that's kind of what was going down in my head. And Play on Philly was just one extension of that from, you know, like kindergarten through 12th grade. And then after like four or five years in, I started thinking about like summer camps. Like, how do I get my kids in interlocking? How do I help my kids get into good music schools? But then once we sent kids off to the Royal College in London and Peabody and to Interlocking and Brevard and stuff like that, um, they were still having a lot of the same struggles that I'm sure we all can talk about all night long. Um, and it was sad to see, I mean, one of our first students who went off to the Royal College in London, after a year, she came back home and said, look, I'd rather just get beat up here than get beat up over there. Mm. And to see her, you know, kind of, you know, um, move on with their life. And I don't blame her for getting out of the game. I don't blame her at all. Um, but it was sad to see that all the work that we had done with her for seven or eight years, that in one semester, essentially, or one school year, all of that could get undone. Yeah, my heart breaks for these kids that, like, there are so many kids that can do it, but the obstacles, some of the obstacles that sometimes even be their own teachers that gatekeep them from it. It's, um, yeah, I can get bogged down there, so I'm gonna move on. Um, so tell us, uh, tell us more about, about Neman, its inspirations. We already talked a little bit about that, but its origins. Like, how did you get these people, how did you get these people together? Because the website talks about volunteers. And let me tell you about something about these chase the bag musicians, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Let's talk about them, okay? <laughs> I I, I would it. love to hear. I'm taking notes. How did you get all these people to volunteer their time for free? <laughs> <laughs> so I think overall, I mean, I would say that Neman has been about a five-year conversation. 
and two years of work. Um, and I will say five years of conversation because what we are talking about now in terms of racial equity, um, those are conversations that have been going on for decades. And I think five or six years ago, when I started getting more involved in these conversations through things like the League of American Orchestras and the New World Symphony and um, uh, Sphinx Organization, um, I think that um, there was a desire of finally asking the question, we have been dedicating like tens of millions of dollars and decades trying to address this problem and we haven't seen much progress. You all have seen the statistics around the percentage of blacks in orchestras. Um, and the percentage, correct. Um, and then we have seen a pretty significant increase of Asian musicians, mostly from East Asian countries. And we decided with Nimon to focus on um, Black and Latinx uh, musicians because we weren't seeing much change happen. And we were saying, we, we think the Asian musicians are going to be okay. Um, we don't need to concentrate our energy in this initiative, um, although we are advocating for all musicians of color, we're prioritizing those of African descent and um, of Latinx descent. Um, so I will say that we were able to bring together some volunteers to, uh, because we were asking the question, let's find a new approach to this decades old problem. And I think that's really what brought people in. And slowly we had conversations um, through the New World Symphony, uh, through the League of American Orchestras. Um, you know, I was part of the team that helped to design the National Alliance for Audition Support, um, several Sphinx initiatives, including their LEAD program, um, working with administrators of color. Um, and you know, also lots of other, you know, institutions um, uh, that were also working on very similar projects. And what we decided to do is that we started asking um, for the classical musicians of color to share their stories from the day they touched their instrument to the day they got tenure in a professional orchestra. And it was very fascinating, the stories that we heard, because some of them didn't have financial problems. Um, and uh, some of the musicians of color um, had um, a, a tremendous amount of financial issues, but they had access to really good teachers through programs, you know, like I experienced. Mm -hmm. So we started to kind of map this out. Instead of thinking about a pipeline, which was a, has been a very popular way to describe this, yeah, we were like, well, Crap. I was like, well, maybe this is a bridge. Um, and maybe this bridge is supported by things like identifying talent, given opportunities, or logistical or psychological support, those types of things. Um, and with that, we started to map out kind of a new approach um, of how do we build kind of these two parallel paths where one is around the support and mentorship and training 
for the musicians of color um, and connecting those musicians with advancement opportunities um, to mentors, to sponsors, which is different mm -hmm. than mentors that are helping them get through something to somebody that really has their back, that's telling them, hey, this opportunity is opening up and I want to make sure that you get an invite to the audition. And then the second path is that how do we also provide forms and resources and training to organizations to help dismantle those inequities that I talked about earlier and those biases and the systemic racism that's just really part of the day-to-day -day operations of these organizations um, so that they can give equitable opportunities and then that they can also provide an environment for um, classical musicians of color to thrive and like really feel like they belong um, in those spaces. And I think that if we can get both of these pathways working really well um, and matching musicians with those opportunities in spaces where they feel like they belong at the same time, I just think that we can see much larger numbers go through our, um, our pre-college programs and summer camps and conservatories and then the pre-professional training programs like New World, Chicago Civic, Orchestra, some of the top grad school programs. Um, even if you went to an HBCU to study, um, how do you help those musicians that see themselves there be able to go to grad school at Juilliard, for example, and finish up their training? Mm -hmm. um, so those are things that we are working really, really hard to say for the organizations, let's actually share resources, let's cooperate, um, let's coordinate, instead of thinking, hey, I'm the admissions department at this conservatory, and we all have a mandate to find more black and brown musicians. So we're just going to like, you know, just work on our own to say, what if we get all the admission schools to work together? And what if we get all of the pre-college programs working together, where it's a proactive relationship of introducing these students to the standards that Juilliard will take, for example, or Curtis, and let's work together to get students to those levels and build a relationship between the admissions departments of these schools and these families. Because um, then I think that we can build a completely different culture. Um, and then I think that puts a lot of pressure on the organizations to change. Mm -hmm. um, they're not going to attract these students. Um, at all to go to these institutions over going to places like, um, you know, HBCUs, for example, or, or maybe even state schools where tuition is much lower, mm -hmm. um, you know, that still have really, really good teachers. Um, I don't think that's really going to happen if, again, the organizations don't make substantive change. There are a lot of organizations listed um, on your website, and I'm, just, I'm curious as to what the support for them. I know we talked about, you briefly mentioned like administrate, admission offices like coming together, but like what is, what does support from these institutions look like for you or how do you envision it look like? Because something like if you were to partner with the music festival, for example, I remember one thing a teacher told me a couple years back is that there, there is just this unwritten rule at these music festivals that you must pay something. They want you to pay something. 
And I think that's not always the ca the case for a lot of students, especially it blocks out students that have an incredible amount of talent. And in the same breath, like I'm thinking about me and the length of a program that I can go to when I, or what could have gone to when I was an undergrad and at Eastman is that, am I gonna get rental support? Like who's gonna be paying the rent? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I think I've said to Delaney, like I'm not, I think I, between all my family members, I could put together a little of a $5,000 tuition bill to go to one of these things. But who's gonna pay June and July rent so I can go play viola in the mountains for eight weeks? I think that's the thing. So I'm just curious what that looks like. Is it only about, not only, but beyond finding the students, what other, what other ways do these institutions support Niman? So I think in this case, I mean, that you've brought up, I think there's a lot of flexibility that organizations can have. Mm -hmm. And being somebody that runs an organization myself, I've bought plane tickets for my kids to go to summer festivals in Canada or to go to Los Angeles or to other places. Um, we can make that stuff happen. Mm -hmm. The other thing, we can pick up the phone, we can call those places and we can arrange things like, can these musicians stay somewhere for free while they're there? Can you get them connected to a local host that will help pick them up from the airport, get them to their rehearsals? Um, and then in, in some cases, we have the flexibility to do things like, you know, if a student really needs to cover an expense, like for example, their apartment back at home might, you know, might need to cut a check. Can we pay the rent for the summer while they're away at summer camp? So that's one thing they don't have to worry about. So we're trying to encourage these programs to think that, or, or to realize that they probably have a better chance of securing the money locally than the musicians that are trying to come into the program. Sure. Mm -hmm. So I think if you talk about the mountains, you probably talk about Aspen, maybe. That'd be my guess, okay. all right? <laughs> maybe um but um in that case you know with some of the partners there you know is it possible um to using some of this um how do i say this new energy that happened post george floyd um this is an opportunity for those host organizations to raise additional money to make sure that they can equitably provide opportunities for musicians of color who may need that financial support. Sure. Um, so we know that organizations um, can try to do this better um, uh, for, for more musicians. Sure. I don't know what happened to Delaney, but you're going, she'll be back, her Wi-Fi cut out. We're gonna keep going. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> so tell us about the bridge concept. The bridge concept that you alluded to it a little bit before. Um, tell us about the the bridge uh, concept. If you can explain the not the concept, but like the matrix. If you can explain its structure and its origins and uh, a little bit more. I think you already talked about how it was formed because it's basically like a, you you interviewed a bunch of musicians. So maybe you can even talk about like what that process was like and where you found these musicians, stuff like that. Sure, so, um, you know, I work with two very dear friends of mine, uh, Wes and Sprott, 
who plays trombone in the Met. He also runs a pre-college program at Juilliard. And then Shay Scruggs, who's a former oboist um, from the Baltimore Symphony and the San Francisco Opera Orchestra. Um, both are Curtis graduates. And um, Shay Weston and I worked very, very closely on developing the bridge concept in the Matrix um, alongside our colleagues from the New World Symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, and like what I mentioned, we talked to several musicians of color um, and using their stories, we developed a matrix that separated the musical journey into five phases um, that um, correspond to the first time they touched their instrument in you know, early, um, early years in an entry level to a high school and pre-college level, um, to a college slash conservatory. I use those words like synonyms. Um, And then a pre-professional level and a young professional level. And we also knew that there were five factors that needed to be in place to help a musician advance from one stage to the next. Now, the disclaimer is, musicians of any color and cultural background need um, a lot of these same structures in place. But we want it to be unique and call out those factors that are unique to the black and brown experience in classical music, knowing that many of these factors work differently Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of us. Um, So those were things around psychological and behavioral preparation. Um, You know, important, like, what are these musicians told? Like, are they told in high school that they can do this? Mm. Or are they told, you know, that they can't quite hang? Um, They can't quite phrase something in the right way. Um, Technical training, this is a big one. Um, And I think it really matters um, to push kids um, technically to a, to a higher level. Um, and one thing that I personally hate hearing um, are things about, oh, you know, what can essentially little black and brown kids do with music? And no one would ever say about the little white kid or Asian kid that is practicing for two hours every day and they're nine years old. Nobody would ever tell that, you know, you're doing something harmful to those kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't tell me that our black and brown kids um, can't practice more or achieve at a higher level. Um, I just don't want to hear it. Right. Um, th- then there are things like logistical and financial support. We certainly know that families need a lot of support and handholding through this process, a lot of information. They need to know that the base that you buy when a student is in middle school is different than the base that they will need late in high school to be competitive for college programs, which is a different base than the base that they need once they're in music school. Um, You see where I'm going with this, right? And you don't just buy a $1,700 base, you are fine. And it has to be clear and understood that that student is probably going to need a ten to $20,000 base before they graduate from high school if they're going to keep, you know, keep up with everybody else. Um, then there's the organizational support. You know, it's everything that we kind of talked about 
an organization going above and beyond to create that level of equity. They know the students coming into Aspen. They know they need a place to stay. They know that they might be having some financial issues at home. Like what can that organization do to promote equity and alignment um, throughout this? And then the last one is just around talent identification and opportunities. Once you show up to Aspen, who there at Aspen has your back? Um, who is still who is still pushing you? Um, are they identifying you and making sure that when Baller One comes around, you are playing principal bass so that you get that experience playing that big solo um, at the beginning of well, whatever version you play, the third or the fourth movement. Um, um, and you know, same thing at all of the other levels. Um, it really, really matters. Um, who gets those opportunities in the youth orchestra, the summer camps, right. um, even the pre-professional training programs. Um, so anyway, our whole thing is that if those five factors, again, are in alignment at the high school, pre-college level, that will facilitate that move into the college conservatory level, being at a very competitive um, spot and so on. Mm -hmm. So. Um... Have you had any success with implementing these aspects of the bridge program with your own students? I know you've talked about like how you guys kind of constructed this from these interviews, but can you talk about like what aspects of that have you had experience with um, either yourself or with your own students? Yeah, I think about Achille Farrow, violinist in our program, the one I was telling you that went to the Royal College in London. Um, and she started playing violin, I believe in the fifth grade. And, um, you know, I just remember in sixth grade, um, the following year, uh, we were able to get her into one of the other local youth orchestras in town um, and get her matched with a good teacher. Um, and I just remember going in, um, <laughs> telling the, um, the youth orchestra that she had only been playing a year. Now, they didn't know that she was like with us every single day for a year, which is different than what most, you know, kids right. in a Philadelphia school program accomplishes. So I remember having to go in and advocate to try to get her an audition because she only had one year of experience. And it was like, well, you got to hear her play. Of course, they changed her their mind when they heard her play. Mm -hmm. When she got into interlocking, similar situation. She was sitting, I, I want to say, last desk, second violin in the bottom orchestra. And I remember, uh, well, I was also on the board of Interlochen at the time. So I had a little bit of, you know, <laughs> I could kind of go in and tell the violin teacher, like, I got you. But I went in and essentially said, do not pity her. Do not tell her she sounds good. She needs to fix her intonation. She needs to fix her bow hole. Um, and she needs to figure out, um, just again, getting better control of her left hand. And I said, when she comes back after this six-week experience, I want her to have a better understanding of these concepts. Um, so I remember specifically going in. Um, so then the next year she went, she ended up landing in the second violins of the top orchestra and worked her way up to the first violins before that summer was up. And it was the same thing. You were not going to pity her, um, made sure that interlocking worked with her, 
on the tuition. Um, so there were, you know, things like that. And then she got into a really great program in Philadelphia called the Primavera Fund. Um, they really did the bulk of the work in getting her match with a musician from the Philly Orchestra. And with their hard work, they then were able to get her into the Royal College. So those were instances where it was like, you know, definitely know how the game is played, but also sitting down with her and her mom to say, when you go to Interlochen, this is how you're going to feel. This is what people might say and do. And you got to understand that if something goes wrong, something don't feel right, you call me. Because mm -hmm. when you call me, I'm calling Interlochen to fix the, the issue. Um, and if need be, I will be there the next day on the next flight <laughs> if something really goes down. So, you know, you know, she knew that I was there and had her back and she dealt with some stuff. Um, I'll tell you one, one really uh, quick story was that I got a call from one of the cabinet counselors saying, well, yeah, she's not being very social. I was like, what do you mean she's not being very social? I mean, I don't blame her. She don't want to hang out with a bunch of white kids. Okay, I get that. But um, she was like, yeah, you know, every time they're out in the lake, you know, she doesn't go out in the lake. And I'm sitting there like, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't get in no lakes, but I'm not going to speak oh, for all right. black people. Animals um, in there. <laughs> <laughs> no pool. Yeah, I don't do lakes. Exactly. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Yeah. And I was sitting there saying, well, you know, um, she's probably not getting in the water because you know what happened to black girl hair when they get wet. And she was like, no, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Oh, I was like, Who are okay, y'all people? Well, I was like, okay. We found out that what was really needed was that we had to bring in a hairstylist um, from Grand Rapids to do those girls' hair so that they felt more this. comfortable. <laughs> they felt more comfortable this. getting in the water and getting wet because I don't care. They don't, did not want to walk around the campus with jacked up hair, and I don't blame them. So it's just kind of understanding some of those cultural issues. And they're sitting there thinking, like, the girls don't want to be friends with nobody else. It's just like, no, they just don't want to splash around in the water. Um, it has nothing to do with how you define having a fun time mm -hmm. is. Um, uh, so, so anyway, it's just things, things like that, of having these students back. But then it got to a point once she crossed the pond and went to London, I, I didn't have anybody there to call. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that there's so many stories that I know that y'all have heard them because I've heard them on this podcast. Um, anyway, there, there's a lot of those types of situations. Yeah, so bad. I mean, I'm about to say, I'm you sitting here saying all this stuff. I don't got nobody to call. You know, I just got here. Cause, but I, I have a student right now that I'm like, I want you to do these things because I want you to, I want you to be in a place where these are, they're going to be better than you. And I want you to figure out, <clears throat> I'm doing you a disservice. If you think that you, you playing like this and you being the best here is, is a, is a, a accurate picture of, of what this is. And, you know, I'm kind of pushing, she don't know, but I'm kind of pushing her to, to study music because I think she'll be really, to have two violas that I think will just be really good. But you have to know that, that these these there are kids that will play circles around you they will like you struggling with this a minor you i'm like you over here struggling with this a melodic minor scale do not think that everybody's struggling with it i'm like there will be kids who can play this and they will play it faster than you 
and you better hope by some striker look that not at all of them applied because this wasn't it. This wasn't it. But we'll try again next year. Um, Katie, I don't know if that's a strategy. I don't know if that's a strategy. Hope they don't show up. You you, you hope that they car flip over on the way. I did. I called Miss Brown and Katie comes through slashing tires and stuff. I mean, I try to be. I try. I try to be as trans. I try to strike the balance between being transparent and being supportive. I'm like, you text me whenever you need to, but also like, just because you think this excerpt is hard, there are kids who can play it. They will play. They will play it cleanly. But I want. I want. They have to see that there's a world out there that they they are better. Um, so you can be better. I'm like, Miss Brown is easy. I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> but Katie, imagine, imagine if if everybody did that though. That's for, a for the black and brown babies. If everybody was like that, um, because I've heard it before from folks saying, "Oh, you sound good." I'm sitting there like, "I'm not boo boo the fool. I, that don't sound good." Why are you lying to me? Experiencing it right now. <laughs> but I think mm. I mean so, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just feel like I mean, I t- I, I tell. I talk to Armin about this all the time. I know I project to my students because I know what teacher I needed. And I, obviously, like, I figured it out because I had certain people that took interest in me. Class musicians love saying that they took interest in me. You know, Mr. Taylor being one of those people. Um, but, and, and I have, I keep, people keep coming up. Like, Jen Arnold is a, is a huge um, mentor for me. Like, she always hears me play. Like, she's fantastic. But, like, I just want, I, I cake for my students to wish I, the way I wish someone cake for me at every step of the way. Like I wish if every student had that, that's fixing the problem. Because you, even if you gear these kids up to go to these conservatories and then like they get there and this is the first time they, they've been the only black person or the first time they've experienced racism in that way or a teacher who was not rooting for them, they were cute in the audition, but now they acting funny, they acting different, like it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the different projects that Neiman is implementing? Sure. So um, we are, um, you know, tackling, I think, you know, kind of five major uh, projects. So the first one is a youth musician leadership, leadership summit. And the thing is that we want to elevate more of the voices and experiences of our younger musicians um, mainly high school level, to really kind of share their perspectives and also their advice to um, organizations uh, that are trying to help musicians like them. And I think oftentimes their voices are not considered um, as we are building and designing new programs. So we want to make sure that those students, their voices are being heard in addition to those that we typically hear from at the college level. The other thing that we want to implement are doing campus visits to colleges and summer programs. Um, And I think that it is so important, not the year that they apply, um, but a couple of years before they're applying, especially at the conservatory level, to be able to visit those cities, walk the campus, be able to talk to the other BIPOC musicians that are already there, Mm. um, to be able to have a trial lesson or two, sit through the orchestra rehearsals, chamber music coaching, theory classes, for them to clearly understand the level 
um, that it takes to be at any of these places, but also to develop the relationships that they need with some of the um, students, with some of the faculty members, so that they feel more comfortable and really can kind of see themselves at many of these places. Mm -hmm. um, so we want to organize with our partners at the college level, can they open up their campus for two or three days and provide that type of experience? Mm -hmm. Not just you signed up and you're going on a tour of the building and they telling you that important statue you're seeing is something <laughs> made somewhere else. Not that. <laughs> um, and then we want to make sure to the best of our ability with those kids and families that need help getting to those campus visits that they're also provided that financial support mm -hmm. um, to be able to go um, we also want to do a, a career development form for really kind of recent college graduates and really early career instrumentalists i'll give you a perfect example of this because of covid 19 lots of orchestra musicians have retired and they're looking to retire within about the next year. Um, we anticipate there's going to be a big number of auditions coming up in the next couple of years as orchestras, you know, open back up, they start raising some money. Um, what we want to do is specifically think about um, how can we prepare more musicians of color for these openings that are coming up um, and begin working now, getting them connected to mentors from those orchestras that can help you know, provide some motivation and some support and advice um, to be most prepared for that. Then we're also thinking about the effects of COVID, how many musicians were just kind of like just messed over during this time. Um, and I think really important that we think about how um, professional careers are constructed and the type of networks they need to build. Because for us, we define being a professional as you could pay your bills by playing your instrument, period. Um, if you are in a military band or military orchestra, a symphonic orchestra, a chamber group, a freelancer in a particular city, you can pay your bills um, performing on your instrument. Mm -hmm. um, so we want to do, I think, a much better job at helping them understand how to navigate those situations, being a freelancer or even, um, you know, cutting teeth and things like professional orchestras. Cutting teeth? Um, what? What'd you say? What's that? You said cutting teeth? Is that a trumpet thing? Yeah. Oh, you haven't heard that expression? <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm, 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 dentistry? Wait. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, I'm following, I'm back. <laughs> um, and, then, and then also, you know, we want to do, um, um, you know, teaching seminars. Um, and we want to, we just want to help people become better pedagogues and better teachers. That's just such an important part yeah. of all of our careers. Um, and we just think it doesn't have to be so painful establishing a studio, but also being able to be most effective with working with, uh, students and trying to get them, especially our people to, uh, another level 
And then the last thing is that we're, we're planning on having a national convening each year. Um, and I think that what we don't want to do is bring in a whole bunch of talking heads to talk about like diversity stuff. We want these convenings to be focused on um, aligning these organizations and all their work and program. Uh, we also want to do like an annual report card. You know, how are we doing as a field? Where are we making progress and where aren't we? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to, to really engage in really honest self-evaluation um, so that we can create more tangible results. So this is not about, and I think that the convening we will have will be very unique in the field. Um, I think there are other convenings to go to, to hear people talk um, and, and hear from thought leaders um, about what's going on, but we want this to be about action. Sure. Um, because if we only saw four people of color get an orchestra job the year before, we want to talk about what is going on, what is happening, um, what's changing, what isn't. Um, so um, the same thing with conservatories and summer camps and summer festivals. Everybody has made all of these statements of commitments to helping our people in classical music. And we want to call them on it each year and say, y'all committed to do all this stuff and we're not seeing evidence of not even half of it. Um, so I think there's a way to do that in a constructive way. Sorry, I position it like we, we're going to be policing people. I mean, either way. <laughs> That's why. I'm playing. I didn't say anything. I, I don't know why y'all laughing. Don't, uh uh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, um, I mean, this all sounds great. And speaking of, you know, if, if people want to get involved in this, you know, checking people, um, what are some of the ways that people can get involved with, with NEMA, whether they individually, um, their organization, et cetera? So they can, they can join our neighborhood watchdog group. Neman.org, N I M A N.org. But on the website, we have much more information um, about our membership levels, our programs, um, our aims, our goals. Um, people can sign up, um, well, depending on when they listen to this, but they can sign up to be nominated for our board of directors. Um, they can join one of our various task force. Um, that people can sign up as an individual member, they can sign up with their organization um, if they want. Um, and also they can make a donation if they just want to um, financially help us reach our goals. Uh, that would also be very helpful. So lots of information on the website and ways for folks to get involved. And one final question for you. 10 years from now, where do you hope to see what do you hope to see Nima? Like, what do you, what do you, what are your, like your wildest dreams? Like, what do you, what do you envision? Like no, no restraints. It's like, what do you? Um, accountability. Um, I just want to hear the field. Um, be able to address year in, year out what they have done to help, where they have fallen short, mm -hmm. um, and to have some constructive conversations around it. 
and for them to not talk passively. I hate it when I hear things like, oh, we ain't showing up for auditions. Um, you know, or uh, we are not floating up to the top to be final, final candidates or in the finals pool of whatever audition. I can't stand to hear that stuff. Um, and I think that it would be great to change perspectives um, and start talking about what are things that each individual can do and organization can do, and then what can we all do collectively to kind of help solve some of these issues. Um, I want to see us move in the direction of getting more musicians opportunity, more musicians of color opportunities in the field of classical music, period. Mm -hmm. But I want to say, I think it's going to take a whole generation to change the numbers yeah. of faces on the stage. But in 10 years, I want to see us moving in that direction, that it's clear, just like what I mentioned earlier, the percentage of change of Asian musicians, that's moving, that's creeping up. Um, and I want to see us head, heading in that direction. Well, Stanford, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Um, let's do just a, like a little outro, um, maybe reiterate the, the website, the social media where people can connect with you guys. Yeah, so I would say, please visit us at niman.org, N-I-M-A-N.org for more information and to be able to take action with us today. Period. Um, I'm gonna link and I and I'll link all of you guys's, um, mm -hmm. you know, your website, Instagram, um, everything below, so that uh, people can check it out. Um, and we'll be hearing more about Niman in the coming weeks. We're gonna be talking to um, a bunch of Black musicians um, from different points in the bridge concept uh, that Stanford explained, um, and just talking a bit about um, those different points of entry and those different aspects that go into um, seeing a musician all the way through to when they uh, receive tenure in an orchestra. So that's going to be coming up in the next couple of weeks. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, y'all, it's time for Black Excellence, where we hype you up, gas you up, and give you your props because there's room for everyone at the top. I almost forgot the line every week 123 times okay this week i'm talking about kayla waters kayla was like low-key high-key low-key a suggestion like kind of like a little bit but not really but a little bit um so this is a reminder to send your suggestions for black excellence kayla Waters. okay Kayla Waters is a chart-topping recording artist, composer, producer, and music director. After singing a multi-album signing, okay, Katie. After signing a multi-album record deal with Trippin' and Rhythm, uh, Kayla made her Billboard history uh, by becoming the first female pianist and composer to reign atop the charts at number one spot for six consecutive weeks. Um, beautifully composed and eloquently eloquently written. Kayla's sophomore album, Co-Evolve, has dazzled the hearts of many and awarded her two Billboard number one singles, Zephyr and Full Bloom. I promise I can read Kayla. It's just, you know, sometimes English be looking like Dutch. Kayla's awards include the Rising Star. No, no, it's going to be trifling. Kayla's awards include the Rising Star and Jazz Award um, and the Black Jazz Artist Award. 
in Washington DC where she was where she is based. The spotlight has humbly created opportunities for Kayla to play and perform with music legends and prominent recording artists including Stevie Wonder. There you go. Her. Patrice Russian, Avery Sunshine, Maisha Leek, Kim Burst, uh Rachel, Gladys Knight, Marsha Ambry Ambrosius. Marsha Ambrosius? Oh my bad. From Flowetry? Corinne Bailey, Ray, and Imani Izuri. Kayla is a classically trained pianist who grew up in a jazz household. She's the daughter of urban jazz saxophonist Kim Waters. Um, she graduated summa cum laude from Howard University. Come on, HU. You know. Also smart. Okay, I just went to school. Uh, where she earned a degree in piano performance. And she's also the associate music director at Grace Breath Brethren Church in Maryland. And delights in the opportunity to share her God-given gifts of music and ministry. So shout out to you, Kayla. You seem to be excellent and black and doing your thing. Purr. Period. Um, my piece this week um, is the is it called Sweet for Bass Quartets by an Australian composer named Colin Brumby. I used to listen to this a, long, a lot back in the day and somehow it came back up in my face so I've been listening to it lately so that's my piece this week you know you might could do you might could make you a little Instagram video with you playing all four parts yeah I actually just bought I actually just bought the sheet music a couple days ago so we'll see well I'll be linking your Instagram so we can wait patiently and I'll be linking your recital what recital the recital that you're doing on let's see here Oh, you're talking about my calendar. Calendars can be incorrect sometimes. Oh, you want me to say we could? I can say it and we double check. I mean, I just don't. I don't oh, know. You're editing this episode, so I'll say it next week. Can <laughs> <laughs> be going into the SoundCloud, taking it down. Okay, we putting it back up. And then only put, and then looking stupid because I only have my audio. So guess what the lady said. <laughs> Make a note of to do that. And I'll make a note to do it back and change the password. And people going to be like, why did the episode keep going up and down? <laughs> I don't know, man. Boink. It'll only be going up because password will be changed. So Okay, and then I'll complain to SoundCloud. As well as, the, as well as the password to the email. Very good. And I will write to SoundCloud and say my thing has been hacked. And I will write to SoundCloud from Classical Black's email address and be like, no. And then I will write to I set it up, but I think it's set up to my phone number as well. So it's And I will be app. writing them and be like, someone and, hacked and my I stuff be, and hacked and my I email. We'll be pulling up um, pictures of Classically Black, which I am in, and cutting you out of them. <laughs> Very, like, I don't know who. She's deranged. I fired can. her. She just. <laughs> and I will be driving. And, and I. And I will be driving to. SoundCloud's headquarters. <laughs> okay. Aren't they versus, they're based in like Germany or something like that? If I drive fast enough, hide your point all the way there. <laughs> hey, you try that. Guten Morgen. And I will be picking out the music for your funeral. <laughs> <laughs> she dropped a hydroplane over the Atlantic Ocean uh, in the name of Trife. In the name of Justice. And Ina, and, and Ina will be like, that sounds like her. In the name of Justice <laughs> and doing oh, what's okay. right. Mm hmm. Which I am willing to die for. No. Okay. <laughs> Thank y'all for listening to Classically Black Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Classically Black Podcast. If you have a piece of the week suggestion, a Black X suggestion, or a new host suggestion, or a way to Germany, send it to Classically Black. No, I'm not gonna say my personal email, but DM me. If you have the other stuffs, 
besides the drumming thing send to classic black podcast at gmail.com follow us on social media at classically black podcast check out our website classicblackpodcast.com if you're black join isbm it's free like what are you doing like what is you doing like join it okay period isblackmusicians.com follow us at isblackmusicians and we will talk to y'all next week or half of us next week we'll see how it goes okay bye y'all <laughs> bye